It is something that we would rather ignore. We prefer to pretend it does not exist. We like to live our lives th not thinking about the most inevitable thing about us. And see, if, if Christ doesn't come back first, the only thing more certain than us being alive right now is that one day we will all die. And instead of focusing on this reality, we like to drown it out with distractions. Work or school, the next deadline, the next exam, the packed schedules we have, family, caring for loved ones, friends, one social outing after another, media, streaming videos and social media and video games and super smartphones, which have all basically just sucked us into this technology-induced coma. But then something happens every now and then that shakes us out of our stupor. An airplane goes down and with people that we know are connected to. A bus crashes. A mosque gets shot, shot up. A church gets bombed. Maybe someone loses a baby. Or someone we love passes away. And we sit stunned at the funeral. Or even they just get really sick and we realize that it might not end well. Death hangs a pall over all of our lives. No matter who you are, you cannot escape this final enemy, this ultimate enemy, this grim reaper. Sometimes it comes slowly, sometimes it comes quickly, but it always comes. A pastor friend of mine in town wrote a blog this week in which he talked about death. And he pointed out how death is unavoidable and it's unstoppable. And therefore, it's very natural. It's really one of the most natural things about us that we die. And yet, how we often feel that death is unnatural. That we, it's out of place somehow. When someone we know passes away, we think, this isn't right. Or this shouldn't be. And that's because, in reality, death is both natural and unnatural. It's not how God originally designed things to be, and it's not how things will always be. But on the other hand, it still has a, a vice grip on our world and our lives today. Jesus' death and resurrection, what we celebrate this weekend, reminds us of this. As we watch Jesus die in our mind's eye, we see the brutality of death. We also see the deservedness of death. That we all deserve to die, so much so that, that God's Son died in our place to pay for our evil. But then as we see Christ emerging from the grave, triumphing over death, we are also reminded that, that death is not final, that it's not the end, that there is more to life than our limited years in our frail bodies, that there is life after death, and therefore there is hope for us all.
Today, I'd like to open up the scriptures with you to a powerful central passage of the Christian faith, which shows not only the inevitability of death, but also the indispensability of the resurrection. Yeah, let's turn together to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one in the seat in front of you somewhere, and the page number we'll be reading from is on the screen. I believe that is page 961. We'll bring you to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a young church that he cared deeply about in the city of Corinth. And chapter 15 is basically the climax of what he wrote. It's the, the heart of his entire message. We're going to be focusing in on verse 12 down to 28. But we need to start before that. We need to start back in verse 1. Okay, so if you follow along with me, it says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that is the good news I preach to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, so the gospel, he says, this good news of, is how we are saved in the first place, it's how we stay standing as Christians, and it's our hope for being saved in the future too. Central, all the way along. But, what is this gospel? Well, no other passage probably has a, a better, more succinct description than this. Look at verse 3. So, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So, the gospel, or the, the good news, he says, is the most important. It's the best news ever. It's of first importance, primary importance. No other message is more crucial. And what's the gospel? It is the message that Jesus died and rose again. He died just like the scriptures say. The proof of that is that he was buried, and then he rose again, just as the scriptures say. The proof of that is all these eyewitness accounts. And that, those continue. Verse 5, he said, And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the, the resurrection is incredibly well attested to, historically speaking. In that day, many of the eyewitnesses here were still alive. As Paul was writing, he himself was one of them, one of more than 500 of them. But he was like, you don't need to doubt this. Just go talk to Peter. Or talk to James. Come see me. I'll tell you, we saw Jesus alive again. And why is Jesus' death and resurrection so important? Well, we are all sinners before God. And through the gospel, God's grace is delivered to us, giving us forgiveness of sin, new life in him. Just like was Paul's story. It says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. At this point, Paul zeroes in on the resurrection for the rest of chapter 15. We're not going to do the whole thing today. It's the first part here. But there was a, a popular belief in those days, in the first century, that might as well have come out of the 21st century. Because many people believed, and many people believe, that death is final. That once you die, that's it. You don't get a second chance. There's nothing that comes after this life. After all, there's no way to prove that there's life after death, so why believe in it? Now, you may be prone to think this way yourself, but this view doesn't take Jesus or his resurrection into account. Look what Paul says in verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That resurrection of the dead refers to a future time when it is believed that all who are dead will rise again from their graves to be judged by God. And some people, even many Christians of that time, were saying, come on now. Once you're dead, you're dead. It's not possible to come back from being dead. Death is the end. But Paul was equally incredulous. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Like, how can you believe this? It's one thing to believe that there's no afterlife if there's no proof of one. But Jesus is proof. So we proclaim that he's risen from the dead. That's life after death. Let's say for a minute, just to use a, a silly example. Let's say I didn't believe in the existence of bunnies. Rabbits. I figured that would be a good one to use on Easter weekend. But for, imagine that for some strange reason, my whole worldview depended on them not existing. Okay, in order to prove me wrong, you wouldn't have to go out and catch all the rabbits out there. You wouldn't even need to catch all the bunnies in Ottawa or in my neighborhood. All you have to do is show me one. Now, you've got to bring me one, a single living rabbit. In order to prove that there can be something after physical death, I don't need to have to have you witness millions of people rising from the dead. I've just got to show you one true bona fide resurrection. You can doubt that that resurrection is legitimate, sure. But if it is true, then you can no longer claim an afterlife is impossible. If, if beating death is actually impossible, then that really starts a domino effect. Look what he says in verse 13. It says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's simple. If coming back to life is not possible, Jesus could not have come back to life. Makes sense, right? And if Jesus didn't do this, then Paul says our faith is utterly useless. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. 
message paraphrases it this way, and face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors, and everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Imagine someone training for years to compete in a particular sport in the Olympics. Okay, and so they pour endless hours and countless money in preparing for it. Really, their, their whole life is dedicated toward this one goal. And then one day, someone comes along and says, Sorry, your sport got kicked out of the Olympics. And all of their efforts would be in vain. Right? And it would be wasted time, wasted resources. They would have no reason to go on training and pursuing a goal that doesn't exist. That's pretty much what our faith, our beliefs, our religious practices would be like if Jesus did not really, truly, bodily rise from the dead. Useless. If you wonder why that is, we'll see an answer very soon. But first, we'll see the big idea that we should be coming to grips with here. And that is that death is not the end for people, or else our faith is pitiably pointless. Death is not the end for people. If it were, our faith would be pitiably pointless. The resurrection of Jesus is that essential to Christianity. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. And being wrong here wouldn't be merely just this neutral thing. It would actually be wrong. Okay, verse 15 says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So, if I heard that you were all saying things about me that were inaccurate or untrue, saying that I, I did things that I didn't do, I would understandably be upset. You would be too, if people were misrepresenting you. But misrepresenting other people pales in comparison to misrepresenting God. Okay, sure, it might sound like we're giving him credit for something positive, but it would be lying about God. It would be misleading people. We'd be breaking one of God's most central commandments, the Ten Commandments. We'd essentially be false prophets. This is not some insignificant matter. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. After all, Jesus was fully dead, not Mostly dead, Princess Bride style. Crucifixion was absolutely certain to kill its victim. It was nothing if not certain. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Ah. There we see the, the biggest reasons that our faith is in vain if Jesus isn't alive. Okay, our faith be futile because we put our faith in a risen, living Savior. A dead Savior can't save anyone. 
faith in a dead guy is stupid. But also, it says that it would mean we're still in our sins. That would be terrible news. It would mean that Jesus' death didn't work. That it wasn't successful in defeating sin. It would mean that if he didn't rise, sin ultimately won the day by crushing Christ. And therefore, all the the wrong and wicked things that you have done against God, they're still on you. You haven't been, and you won't be forgiven. We've done much more than make a a few minor mistakes in life. One pastor, J.D. Greer, says this, that we have personally broken God's law, blasphemed God's name, rebelled against God's authority, and we will stand accountable. And so our sins, ultimately, they'll, they'll lead us to condemnation before God, ultimately hell. Now, you might wonder, well, what does hell matter if there's no afterlife? Valid point. But, are you willing to stake your life and eternity on that assumption? It's what it is. It's an assumption. And it's a huge risk. Now, if Jesus has not been raised, it's really not a risk at all. If he's still dead, everyone's in the same boat. Christianity without an afterlife is not Christianity. It is, in fact, worthless. And then it gets worse. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, during his time on earth, Jesus once raised a little girl from the dead, and he said, like, why are you so worried? She was only asleep. Did the same thing with Lazarus. Just asleep. The early church later seemed to adopt that imagery to describe anyone who died. Like, oh, they're not really dead. They're just asleep. One day they're going to wake up. Now, they were not delusional, and they were not in denial. They knew that people were actually dead. But death was different now. It was different now. It wasn't permanent. Here, Paul says that if Christ isn't risen, all believers who die would have no hope for life after death. They actually have perished completely. They're gone, never to rise, snuffed out. It means that every funeral you've ever seen is completely devoid of hope. And Paul sums up his point in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What's the point of of following Jesus if when we die, that's the end of it all for us? Right? Think about it. What's the point? Maybe, Maybe we'll feel a little bit better about ourselves doing good stuff here and now. 
Maybe following Jesus will make us happier, healthier, wealthier. I doubt it. Maybe we'll get a, a little bit of feel-good inspiration for a few short years. Maybe we'll find that religion is a great crutch to hold us up from despair. But ultimately, I don't know how we could avoid that despair. Because all those other things ultimately empty of meaning as we stare death in the face. What good is morality in death? What good does prior happiness do us? What, we, we lose our health at, de at death. We lose our wealth. We can't take it with us when we die. Inspiration, accomplishments, religion mean nothing on a deathbed. Death is the great equalizer. And therefore, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus is dead, he says, we are pitiable and pathetic people. Of all people most to be pitied. All people, like, more than any other people on earth. More than the poorest of the poor more than those with the worst luck, more than people on losing end of wars, more than the disabled, more than criminals or the victims of their crimes. If we follow a dead Christ, our lives are a total sham. We are wasting our time we're wasting our efforts and energies. We are wasting our lives. All of verse 13 to 19 is basically one big hypothetical situation. It's not a very appealing one, is it? If you're a Christian, you might be a bit worried. But what if that's actually true? And on the other hand, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking that like, this actually sounds realistic, right? Like, you might hear, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, and you go, yes, I agree. <laughs> it, your faith seems stupid. I pity you. And I would agree with you. I'd agree with you. The Bible would agree with you here. If it weren't for one small detail. Verse 20 starts with three little words. But in fact. But in fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So. Every negative possibility from the previous verses is untrue because this is true. Right? There is a resurrection. Christ has been raised. Our faith is not in vain or futile. We can be freed from sin. The dead are not lost forever. We have hope for more than just this life. Therefore, there's no need to pity us. 
Here's the positive point we'll see in the following verses. Death is not the end for people, because death was not the end for Jesus. Death was not the end for people, because death was not the end for Jesus. According to God's word, it says it's a fact. Right? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now you, it's like a veritable historical fact. You may disagree with that. Okay, I understand that. You may not believe it's factual. You may think it's more fantastical. But let's recognize that this is the central claim that you need to wrestle with. I saw a fascinating recent interview with Jordan Peterson the star secular author, psychologist, speaker, he once claimed that the resurrection may be the most important topic I've ever considered. He said this then in the interview, the sticking point with the atheist community and the Christian community I don't really think is the existence of God. I think the true sticking point is the idea of the bodily resurrection of Christ. That's a very rough sticking point because it's key to Christianity and it flies in the face of the standard materialist objective view of the world. And so it's something that I wrestle with continually. There are statements in the New Testament that are so surprising that it's almost impossible to understand how they could have come about from the standard scientific materialist perspective. But the claim is so overwhelming and also so mysterious that I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of the idea of the physical resurrection. Now, if you do not yet believe in Jesus, I hope you can take this posture of humbly and continually wrestling with the resurrection. It is that important. You, your worldview will turn on it. I firmly believe it's a, a matter of life and death. And I, for one, pray that Peterson figures out what to make of it. And that so do you. There are a number of pieces of historical evidence that I would suggest for you to consider. But for just one major thing today, consider the eyewitness testimonies that our passage mentioned. The majority of these eyewitnesses were uneducated, modest, common folk who only days before had been shaken to their core, devastated, crushed by the death, the undeniable and bloody death of their leader and friend. They went into hiding and cowered behind locked doors afraid that they'd be next. These weren't the kind of people to attempt or even know how to pull off a hoax, especially a hoax of this magnitude. Some of the eyewitnesses were already followers of Jesus. Others were not. Some, like Paul, were even avowed enemies of Christ. These were not people who would have worked together or coordinated their efforts, getting their stories straight. But something happened. Something radically changed each one of them. They, we believe, of course, they saw Jesus once dead, now alive. 
was like something made them courageous, ready to risk or even lose their lives to tell the story. Something made them all come together as a team. Jews, Gentiles, friends, enemies, terrorists, and the terrorized. All eyewitnesses together. Most of them stood to gain nothing from claiming that Christ was risen. Sure, they get, I mean, they get to claim they were right. Bragging rights that would get them killed. That's what you want. Not only would they gain nothing, many of them stood to lose everything. Followers of Christ were being imprisoned and beaten and martyred. I mean, just think of Paul. Paul was this up-and-coming hotshot in first-century Judaism, highly esteemed by his peers. Why would he ever give that up to join a band of misfit martyrs? Doubtlessly, as, as opposition increased, some of them would have decided it just wasn't worth it all. Right? They, they couldn't have been that certain that Jesus was alive. They'd have, been, they'd have backed out. Like, why maintain this ruse? It wasn't worth dying for. Or even having your family members killed over. No one dies for what they know to be a lie. So if they weren't certain... But they were. They were certain. They died, many by the hundreds. They knew it was true. That, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When it says Jesus was the first fruits, there it means that he paved the way for all those who die. Like another translation puts it, he has become the first of a great harvest of those who will be raised to life again. Every funeral for those who belong to Christ is different now. Death is transformed. Okay? It's no longer an unbeatable foe as it has been beaten by someone. Look at verse 21. It says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Our forefather Adam led us all into sin and thus into unavoidable death. All die, it says, but now Jesus as a second truer, greater Adam reverse this reality. Now through him all can be made alive. And that doesn't mean that everyone will be saved and enjoy eternal life, as we shall see. But that does mean that all who come to Christ by faith will be saved. Know today that if you do not have Jesus, you are actually in a way dead in your sins. And worse yet, you're on the way not only to, to physical death, but also eternal death. But because Jesus died and rose again, that doesn't need to be your destiny. 
if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Listen, your life right now is not all there is. If it is, then, then hope is hard to come by. The, the things that consume much of our days are, are temporary and transient, but there is an unseen and eternal reality that we will all walk into one day. Kids, young people, death may seem really far away for you. You never know how much time you have left. And even if it's a long time, it goes by fast. All of us need to be ready. No matter who we are, no matter how old we are, we need to be ready to face death. And I believe our only hope is to face it with the one who's already beaten it as our Lord. So call on his name to save you today. If, if we never do, we will enter eternity as his enemy. See, even those who don't follow Christ will be resurrected one day. Jesus himself said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We see this truth again here in 1 Corinthians 15. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then in his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So there's a proper order of resurrections, only the first of which has actually happened by now. Jesus is raised first, then those who belong to him are raised, and then everyone else. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God and subdues all his enemies forever. So, do you belong to Christ if so, take heart in the fact that this is coming. If you do not belong to Christ, take heed that this is coming. That Jesus will come as a judge and a destroyer one day. But also take heart that you can belong to him today. You might be surprised to hear on Easter of all days of Jesus being a destroyer. Should this really surprise us? I mean, considering the resurrection itself was a battle which Jesus decisively won against sin and death. He is a conquering king. And as this passage concludes, we will see more of this. Here's the point we'll see. Death is not the end for people, and will one day, death will one day meet its own end under God. Death is not the end for people, and death will one day meet its own end under God. Death is already beaten by Jesus, but one day death will be ended by Jesus. Look, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, this is why the world is still ravaged by death. It has yet to be completely destroyed. It is the last enemy to be destroyed. But it's on a list. A heavenly hit list. It will be destroyed. It, Revelation 20 tells of when this will happen. The death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death is an enemy, and it is a formidable enemy. We will likely all face death, and it will be hard, maybe even horrific. And even if it's not hard on us, it's going to be difficult on those we leave behind. But we have a Savior who's on our side. He hates death even more than we do. And one day he will destroy death once and for all. And when that happens, God will be more glorified than ever. Look at verse 27, how he concludes, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Notice the end, that God may be all in all. Some of you have recently experienced death in your life. I know actually that many of you have. With a, a friend or family member battling this final enemy and losing. Maybe you've attended a wake or a funeral recently, so it's fresh on your minds. My wife's great-grandmother, a dear 97-year-old woman from the heart of Quebec, passed away a week and a half ago. She went peacefully in her sleep, leaving behind a great legacy of loving Jesus. But she's still lost. For now. Some of you are facing your own mortality right now, wondering just how long you have left on this earth. Spoiler alert, you won't win either. Some of you don't know it yet, but your death may be right around the corner. Or if not your own death, you'll be grieving another lost battle in the near future. You don't need cliches, platitudes, or good advice today. You need a destroyer of death. You need a destroyer of death. And the good news of Easter is that he's already won. 
and that he can be yours and you can be his. Powerful video was put out recently about a video game that was made a few years back by a Christian couple, Ryan and Amy Green. The game was called That Dragon Cancer. The game's actually won a number of awards, although if you play the game, it's actually an unwinnable game. You can't win. See, they developed the game after real-life events surrounding their son, Joel, who was diagnosed with a brain tumor at age one, was terminal by age two. Through the game, they, they share Joel's story and along with the challenges of caring for a terminal child. And it's, it's crazy. They help you experience just how out of our control life can feel in the face of death. I'm going to show you just an abridged version of that video now. And then after that, I hope I can pray for us as it wrecks me almost every time I see it. So let's go ahead and hit it.
are not a hero. They can destroy death. So do you trust the only one who has? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, whatever gain we have, may we count it as loss for the sake of Christ. May we count everything, even our lives, as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. May we be willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ. That we may know him and the power of his resurrection. We may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible we may attain the resurrection from the dead. We pray this in the name of Jesus and in the power of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can stay seated.